Hello and welcome to OpWall's Field Notes, a podcast created by Operation Wallacea to share stories and insights from our 25 years working in the field. My name is Sophia Wood, OpWall's Country Manager for Ecuador and Director of Friends of Wallacea, and I will be your host for this series. We launched this podcast to shine a light on the world of biodiversity field research and the work of those who dedicate their lives to understanding and protecting our planet. Each month, we have conversations with scientists, community conservationists, and experienced academics about new research, protecting biodiversity, and daily life out in the field. In this episode, we inaugurate our Q&A section, where our followers and listeners send in questions via the Operation Wallacea Instagram to be answered by scientists and conservation experts. Thank you to everyone who sent in questions last month. Our first question is from Georgie.tx, who asked, what's the best thing we can do for conservation while at uni? We asked Pippa Tozer, Opwell's head of sales and marketing, for her response. When I think of the question, which jobs do I think have the most positive impact for conservation, I always think mine, or similar roles within organisations like Operation Wallacea. My reasons are we have such extensive interaction with local communities, helping them to protect the natural and precious asset they have, in training to continue conservation work when we're not those project sites, and extending this to future generations. Getting to work with in-country organisations, showing them how they too can facilitate conservation in action. Add to this thousands of professionals and young people who come and take part in the research programme, all of whom have their own lives and plans and career goals, and then taking what they've discovered to making better decisions in their future professional careers. Some of our students are always going to be bankers, but they could be bankers then that have a keen interest in conservation and understanding where the money they're making is going. Some of them are always going to be medics, but also making decisions to where they put their own expertise can make a huge difference to the world. I also think it can be really exciting to think about regeneration and the way that funding flows. But yeah, I think probably organisations like Opwell have that in a really neat package. Our next question is by Becky Outside, who asked, how are things going at the field site in England? This question is answered by Bethany Newark, Opwell's communications officer and field course manager for our new project at the Nepa State. Hi, Becky. Thanks so much for your question about how things are going at our new field site in the UK. My name's Beth, and I'm the project manager for our UK site, which is at the Nepa State in West Sussex. This was the first time we've had a field site in the UK, and one of the reasons we opened the NEP site was due to the restrictions on international travel caused by the pandemic. Another reason was that we wanted to start offering a slightly different kind of expedition to our volunteers. The course at the NEP estate and our other local ecology courses around the world are designed for people to get hands-on experience and gain skills that are specific to the country where the expedition is that they then carry forwards into their future careers. At our UK field site, we taught volunteers about the UK HAB system for surveying habitats, the BTO bird ringing system, and the biodiversity net gain concept that's coming into UK law very soon, amongst other things. We had a fantastic season and we're planning on running the programme again next year for another set of volunteers to come and learn with us. Hamish McKee asked the challenging question, what is the biggest global threat to biodiversity? To answer this, we asked Dr. Dan Exton, Opwell's head of research, to share his thoughts. 
This is a great question and one that often gets mistakenly entangled with the whole climate change debate because although climate change is responsible for a lot of things and we like to blame it for everything, in this case, it's actually a relatively small driver of biodiversity loss. By far, the two dominant threats to biodiversity are firstly direct exploitation. For example, where species are fished or hunted to extinction simply because sustainable yields aren't being respected. And then secondly, the degradation and loss of habitat. So that's things like deforestation and urbanisation, which limit the area in which a species can survive and thrive, or it fragments their populations, which removes all the benefits of connectivity. And then beyond these two, there are a whole collection of smaller drivers, which all contribute towards biodiversity loss, but to a much lesser overall extent. These include things like climate change, but also pollution, disease, and invasive species. Thank you very much to everyone who sent in their incredible questions. Unfortunately, we couldn't get to all of them this week, but we will have Q&As in the rest of our podcast from now on, so keep on sending your questions. We love answering them. For now, stick around to hear my conversation with John Cahequa, an Earthshot Prize finalist and founder of the Pole Pole Foundation. Just a quick note, we noticed there is a slight echo in the recording due to our circumstances for recording the podcast remotely. It mostly fades out after the first few minutes, so we hope you still enjoy this wonderful conversation with John Cahequa. Today, we have a very special guest on the podcast, John Cahequa, the director of the Pole Pole Foundation from the Democratic Republic of Congo, or DRC. The Pole Pole Foundation recently reached international acclaim as a finalist for the first ever Earthshot Prize, founded by Prince William, and has been recognized previously by the Goldman Sachs Whitley Award. John grew up among the endangered eastern lowland gorillas of the DRC and always dreamed of working with them to help their populations survive. He believed that the fates of the gorillas and local people were bound together by the poverty and war surrounding Cahuzi Biega National Park in the DRC. Since 1992, he has led the Pole Pole Foundation to try to solve the root causes of deforestation and poaching, poverty and hunger in local communities. I sat down with John on this episode to discuss the Pole Pole Foundation's agricultural projects that grow low-cost, nutritious foods to help lower local communities' dependence on the resources of the national park and build local capacity. He discusses how these agricultural programs protect biodiversity, and in particular, the gorillas, by engaging the surrounding communities in conservation efforts, as well as how this model can be applied anywhere in the world. Hi, John. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. We're really excited to have you. Hi, Safia. Very good to, to meet you too and to talk to you. So just to get started, since we're taping everything from home, where are you based right now? Uh, since I left the Congo, um, Congo Democratic Republic, um, I'm based in London, precisely in Warwick, in Warwick. Um, city. How long have you been living in the UK? Mm, we reached the home, uh, it's about a week ago. Oh wow, okay. And um, obviously today we're here to talk about your work with the Pole Pole Foundation um, and with you know Eastern Lowland gorillas and the communities living in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So I wanted to ask if you could just start out by introducing the Pole Pole Foundation in your own words. What's your mission and when did you get started? 
I will, uh, thank you very much. I will express myself in a, a Congo English. And uh, although the Poly Poly Foundation, <laughs> happy to be the founder of it, it's just from the reality we lived in, in a field of the Cozy Diego National Park. Because I was recruited as a, a guerrilla guide, which became, who became a guerrilla, guerrilla habituation officer for a long term. And then in the field, I was living good things, good souvenirs and bad souvenirs at the same time. The good things is that every time when I was uh, uh, leading tourists, Anglo-Saxon, to see the gorillas, most of the time spend, spending with the gorillas, the babies, juveniles were clapping their hands, were chest beating for us, making happy my visitors. And on the way back, when they were so happy, they was giving me the tip as a teenager of that time, and I was saving my money. The bad thing I have in my heart is that when I, every time the babies and juvenile gorillas were uploading, clapping for us, few weeks uh, later, I saw the babies, I saw the juvenile gorillas, same ones, they were carrying piece of snares and I always feel bad every time when I'm talking about this because I saw them suffering. Um, the, 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 the snares were stretched by community community inhabitants living around the park. Some of the gorillas uh, of the babies died uh, from the snares and some lost some of the limbs like fingers, broken hands, legs, torn ears, broken eyes, and etc. etc. So um, I, it was a big shock for me. And I was saying that uh, if these gorillas could have a human being language, they could say, John, you are not serious. We make you happy every day. We clap for you. We chest beating for you. And your visitors always remember you. But look what you do to us we have lost our limbs some of us are dying this is what they could tell me and i bear that shock uh, in my heart wondering who can be above this wrong activity uh, it took me one year to be uh, looking for where come the human pressure and i discovered that the it was among the communities around the park who stretched the snares for trying to catch antelopes for bushmeat. Unfortunately, the baby gorillas get caught in a snare. To be honest, 20, I recorded 20, 28 cases of young gorillas caught in the snares where uh, 23, 23 were injured and lost different limbs and five of them died. I live this. I did, I'm an eyewitness, so the shock was very big. But um, luckily, from the tips I was making from the visitors every day, I, uh, when a, a tourist gave me $10 as a tip, I went down to Bukavu, my town, and paid some t-shirts, plain t-shirts, and I draw gorilla on the chest, and I, 
wrote, I tracked gorillas in Zaire because it was the Republic of Zaire that time. And uh, I sold the t-shirts $4 each to tourists and I won $40. Progressively, it became my own business. Uh, then I also played a piece of, um, a piece of the documentary, Gorillas in the Mists, uh, a piece in it. And uh, I was paid $200. Also, I was going to talk to um, to the campsite, to the overland trucks passengers, and they was paying me some money. I was saving my money until 1992. I had already saved $6,000. Then I told my wife, Odette, if, what can we do with the money? And she said, we can pay a house. We can buy a simple house in Bukavu. And I said, no, 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 no. We, we, we can be unjust. Let's think somehow we can save our friend gorillas. No way to, to buy a house, to live in a house, as far as our friends, our gorillas have been suffering while they, they played boss to us. We, we got this money thanks to the, to the gorillas. Odette didn't discuss with me. He, she agreed and I decided to do something to, create, to, to, to help the gorillas. In my mind, I was asking myself, wh what can I do to create a moral person? How can I name it? And I said, okay, it will be a foundation. Can I say John Kahiko Foundation? No, it doesn't sound good. Well, later on, I, I, I saw that calling it pole pole in Swahili, our language in the east of DRC, pole pole means Slowly, slowly. I mean, a foundation built on a slower pace, which is a Polypoly Foundation, pop off in short. So we created the Polypoly Foundation. That's an amazing story. Um, you paint such beautiful words, and I guess you have a very supportive wife to have taken that money and go and start a foundation. It's, it's really inspiring um, to hear your story and know the personal side of this. Obviously, you mentioned, you know, in local communities having this impact on the gorillas, whether I guess partially it seems like maybe accidentally because they were hunting for something else. Um, but obviously the mission of the Pole Pole Foundation talks a lot about working with local communities to lower this dependence on the rainforest to help protect the gorillas. Could you explain how local communities are using the forest around them today in the DRC? What resources do they depend on that are coming from the forest or the ecosystems there? Yeah, I, as a, a man who was born seven kilometers from the national park, I, a man who worked since my teenager inside the park, I witnessed everything inside and outside. I mean, the wildlife, the habitat, and the communities living around. Um, as an eyewitness, the human pressure coming from the communities, I can see some. It's, uh, first of all, the habitat clearing. Most of them get in inside the park, cut down the trees for making charcoals, firewood, poles, and timber as well. Secondly, other locals like women always get illegally inside the park for mushroom and medicinal plant collection. Thirdly, the poaching. They poach the wildlife. Fourth, 
they do the my artisanal mining. They they dig gold and coltan as well. Those are the major the major um, tools used by the community on the protected area, the Coast Viega National Park. Got it. Well, I wonder if, you know, for people, obviously the DRC is a country that is frequently in the news for unfortunately often tragic events. I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of background on what the situation is on the ground, where you're working, who are these communities and how many people are you working with? You know, what's what's the economic situation on the ground and in the areas where that surround the national park? What's pushing people to use resources? Yes, um, actually, Poly Poly Foundation has not much means, you know, funds to employ everybody. But the one thing is the demography around the Kahuzibiega National Park. I mean, the eastern lowland gorillas in their habitat. There is a human higher demography. I precise, it is over 1 million people living around uh, the Kahuzibiega National Park. These people are so poor and in need of a job, but they can't get it. The only thing, the only uh, phrase they pronounced to me when I was a teenager said, you boy, they called me a boy at that time, that you are coming to us to talk about you, to talk to us about the park. But remember that we are hungry. Empty stomachs have no ears. I kept that in my memory. And that phrase remains forever my life. That's why I'm always in seek of what can we do together with the community? So Poly Poly Foundation itself employs 22 people, only 22 people, but we work with, um, uh, with the people, I mean, men and women, students, regrouped in different associations. We try to do uh, the work in the tree planting, in uh, the environmental education, growing the spirulina, because we must fight against the malnutrition, because we have the two facts. The gorilla, the gorilla babies are hunted anyway for bushmeat. And the young human being from the community is also hunted by the malnutrition. You see the two different babies, gorillas and human. So that's why we grow the spirulina, uh, just trying to fight against the malnutrition for the new generation uh, born from the local community. We found that uh, the agriculture is the great tool which can provide food for the people to get what they can't get inside the park, what they are arrested from the park. That's why we plant trees, we grow food, I mean, vegetation, vegetables, we grow everything. And we try to educate the local community in order to see if we can end up the conflicts between the park and community as well. That's fantastic. I wanted to ask you some questions about these agricultural programs because you have a number of parallel programs to help the communities around the park have alternate sources of food and livelihoods, it seems like. Um, and you've explained a little bit, obviously, kind of the reasons for putting these programs into place. I want to ask you about your experience 
with the actual implementation of these kinds of projects um, and understand kind of, do you have any success stories from the implementation of these new agricultural methods or on the other hand, any projects that you tried and didn't end up having the desired results? Well, we can have uh, various examples in uh, agriculture. The agriculture, first of all, is based on uh, the arable soil. Uh, the arable soil. In the highland sector of the Cahuzi Biega National Park, where I, I was born and grow up and work, uh, the soil seems to be poor and looks like a, a soil for the clay. It doesn't produce so much. Uh, food or crops, but in general, we grow agriculture, we grow beans, maize, sorghum, soya bean, soya, uh, soya peanuts uh, as well. So local communities uh, harvest and they go to sell. You see that through the agriculture, the, some of the local community have no time to get inside the park to cut down the trees or to rye, to rely on the natural resources inside in the protected area. Although the, um, the tree planting, we, we plant. We do tree nurseries everywhere since 1993 because communities always allowed which species of trees they need to plant. We plant coarse eucalyptus, Grevalia, Patodea, and so on because these trees grow fast and are harvested after eight years of maturity. So the local communities receive saplings produced by a Polypoly poly Foundation. They go to plant these trees in their fields. And when they get the maturity, Polypoly poly Foundation make a survey, try to go to buy some from them for a, a wood carving and employ some of the local villagers for who has been who has become wood covers to make souvenirs to sell to tourists. So now the eucalyptus uh, grevalia, they are sold for planks, charcoals, and poles as well. So also these tree, these tree planting projects for a long term since 1993. We, put, we planted over 4 million trees among the communities, but they, were, they have been always harvested by, by the people who planted those. You understand that this also is a great key tool to prevent the local people to get inside the park again, to destroy the gorilla habitat. Absolutely, that's a great case study. And I was actually wondering kind of which of the programs came first? So it sounds like you started with the planting trees to be able to replace the deforestation. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this spirulina project because you know I think spirulina is obviously something a lot of people in the UK or the US have heard of as like a superfood, might see in smoothies or something like that. Um, but you're growing it locally with these communities. Is spirulina something that was traditionally grown or found in that area, or is it something new that you have introduced um, and how are you working with the communities on developing it? Yeah, that's a good question. Spirulina, um, we didn't grow it here naturally, uh, no, not here in the DRC naturally, but we imported it 
after seeing that uh, the rate of malnutrition in South Kivu, my province, is on 53% of malnutrition. And on the national territory, it, it reaches 43% of malnutrition. So the malnutrition, empty stomachs, doesn't let the nature to live longer. They all rely on the natural resources. So uh, the spirulina, to be too nutritive, uh, it's a superfood, has been a good key for us trying to fight against the malnutrition among these communities who should become rangers in the future, who should become teachers. So if these people die of malnutrition, we lose everything. We lose everything. That's why um, the spirulina, we, we began in 2018 of growing this spirulina. Today we have the pool, we have the pool, which is harvest, which we, we are harvesting the, the spirulina every day. And uh, the quantity we harvest is uh, enabling us to feed 157 malnourished children today. So we found that uh, with the growing food, people, everybody can get well fed. Also, by consuming the spirulina, mixing the, co the spirulina to the food, everybody would be well fed. Uh, that's why we are also intending to see if we can see somehow we can make a modern spirulina pool, which will produce a lot of quantity to be able to feed many other people in need. That's a, an amazing story. So right now, the spirulina that you're producing is all going to feeding the community. Yes, because of uh, growing other crops, growing and harvesting other crops to feed the community. Also involving the spirulina, this will reinforce the agriculture and the nutrition in the Congo, which can be a good tool to help preserving the wildlife and the habitat. Yeah, I'm loving the systems that you have in place to shift people away from using the forest resources that they depend on. I'm I'm curious, you know, you've talked about you talked to some extent about the traditional crops that people are growing in this area, the you know, classic kind of soy and peanuts and lots of crops that people have heard of. But a lot of the projects with Pole Pole have been mushrooms, spirulina, um, you know, tree plantations. So it sounds like something kind of different. What have, what if any challenges have you had with encouraging local communities to adopt these new forms of agriculture? And how have you been communicating these shifts to people? How do you work with people to change towards these new agricultural products? Pole Pole Foundation, there's no border at all. Um, it goes everywhere inside the park because it, it is a partner of the Kahuzibieka National Park Authority. Although it goes among the communities without border, most of the community members trust the work of Polepole Pole, uh, Foundation uh, after almost three decades now. Um, being trusting, we meet many challenges at all, many, 
various even <laughs> good people average good bad tough people but because of being trusted we they mobilize themselves and say polypoly can be the good light for the community let's listen to them we have seen what they've been doing for a long time so when they listen to us uh we happen to meet them and uh, tell them what to do to reintroduce the new model of crops and of tree planting from the tree planting uh the tree planting first of all they reject the indigenous species to be grown in their their fields because it takes years and years and years to grow they accept the exotic as i said before that um, it takes 8 years for maturity so for the 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 traditional crops peanuts soya beans banana maize um most of them didn't like to work they said we don't know how to work we we don't know how to work in a field we have no time we need a good life so teaching them that life good life will never come from the sky the heaven and the knock on the table rather it is to keep working every day so mobilizing them very slowly in a traditional manner the big number of them who have seen the first team doing the agriculture and succeed the big number is coming behind us very slowly the only thing is we can do it but we are also limited we are limited money talks let, let me be honest money talks poly poly foundation in the three decades working in a hard conditions of congo in a in, in a country of a, a crossfire so funds are very 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 difficult to get but if we can get funds anyway to be honest we can do great for people and for the environment for the wildlife but we are limited so the challenges are many if i can begin now sitting 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 could be from today to the morning i haven't finished yet but um, we are much trusted by the community and every example any approach we can come from pole pole to go to the community is always the welcome like uh, nowadays we are planning not only to be planting uh, the trees for the needs by the local we are now targeting to plant trees to restore the nature i mean planning to buy land we grow trees we ref- um, we rejuvenate i mean we ref- we do the ref- reforestation um in the forest that would be called calling different community forests everywhere any denuded hills uh in the communities must be also planted trees for private for polypoly foundation for different communities until we go beyond the beyond the beyond to 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 to, refer, to do the refer, reforestation for the the nature so the approach faced to the challenges we have many at all
Absolutely. Well, that's amazing. Honestly, it's truly an inspiration, the work that you do. And I'm very excited to hear more about this reforestation work. I feel, you know, it fits very well with everything that you've discussed so far. I wanted to kind of take us full circle before we start to conclude our conversation and ask kind of, you know, you started this because you felt indebted to the gorillas and you wanted to protect the gorillas. How have you seen the populations of gorillas change over the last 30 years that you've been working on the Pole Pole Foundation? Have there been improvements to the gorilla populations in the Eastern Congo? Yeah, um, being in the middle of challenges, uh, again, I'm uh, the eyewitness on uh, the wildlife in the community. Um, the gorillas, the gorilla population should go up if there could not be the war in the sub-region. The war in the sub-region, let me give an example. In 1996, uh, we counted the gorillas in the highland side of the Kauzibiaga National Park and we found 254 members. But unfortunately, the war occurred in the DRC, which it the half population of these gorillas. In 2000, when we made the second census, uh, we found one only 130 gorillas left. Wow. Yeah, half was, was eaten. So in terms of, uh, let me talk to the other side about the elephants, the bush elephants. The bush elephants were ranging between the mountain Kahuzi and mountain Biega. Uh, the last census was in 1991, uh, which found uh, 450 elephant, bush elephants. In during the first war, uh, in 1996 to 1998, the 450 elephants were eaten, eaten for bush meat. So I, I'm not here to count the other wildlife inside the park, but. If you come to the headquarters of Chivanga in Kozibiaga National Park, you can see this kill, this kill, the kills, the skills of the animals shot. So now, from the efforts of the ICCN, I mean, the Congolese Wildlife Authority, uh, the Poly Poly Foundation and the other small NGOs and uh, the German Cooperation, uh, we tried to do what we can. Uh, although limited in terms of funds, but the population of the gorillas, due to the Polypole Foundation working in the community, tried to convince everyone, the number went high again. And today we can reach uh, about 160 plus. Well, that's great news. I know, unfortunately, you know, large mammal populations come back so slowly and it can feel like such an uphill battle, but I, I think you know, speaks volumes to the work that you've been doing, that there is an increase, there hasn't been a decrease, even staying stable, I think would be, would be great. So it's great to hear that the populations are coming back. And I hope that this continues in the future. I just wanted to ask you a few more questions about your experience as we round out, because a lot of our listeners are young people looking to get into conservation, looking to get inspired for what kinds of projects they wanna do in areas that they want to protect. So 
What lessons would you like conservationists or other organizations to learn from the work of Pole Pole on how to improve community livelihoods and biodiversity through sustainable agriculture? What I can say above all is to say that um, everybody, it's a must, natural must. Everybody must work in different domain, but remember to be a member of the nature conservation. Why? Because we can't live without nature. Everything turns around the nature. Um, what I can say that, um, first of all, I am proud. I am happy. I am delighted and forever to work with the gorillas. I can't live without the gorillas. Also, um, to go through this is to include the communities around. Because from my long-term experience, I quoted and said, there will never be the conservation of wildlife as far as communities are put aside. I mean, when I'm in community, international, local, national, are all communities. Among these communities, there are the young, the young to whom I'm talking to. I mean, the local in Congo, the, the local in London where I am, the local in America and everywhere. Please, youngers, come and involve. Think of the wildlife in Africa and all over the world, of course, but in Africa. Africa is suffering because of empty stomachs, but community can play great once they are also taken in consideration. If the example is from the Poly Poly Foundation, where I have seen now different women can produce souvenirs to sell to, 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 to tourists. If I can imagine how much the poor lady was caught, arrested inside the park and was jailed, and was posted to pay fines, uh, but for many times, for di di different, many different times. But today, because of Poly Poly Foundation, they have changed how do they are making now souvenirs which can be bought by tourists. It makes me happy. I would like the young to whom I'm talking to uh, to be involved, becoming members of Poly Poly Foundation or other organization. Then uh, study to become ecologists, naturalists, primatologists, just for restoring the nature. Because if we lose the animals, the wildlife, the gorillas are mean, like we lost the, the elephants, huh, we will lose the forest. And when we lose the forest, when we lose the vegetation, we human being, where shall we be? That's why everybody can also uh, try to follow the model of the, um, the inspirational model of Poly Poly Foundation become a member or to practice it everywhere they will be. And then we can meet, discuss and share everything together. Well, that's, that's great advice. I think a lot of people will be inspired by this conversation. Um, if people do want to learn more about the Poli Poli Foundation or support you in your work, where can they find out more about the organization and follow what you're doing? Well, it's, it's, it's very, very easy. Uh, to all my brothers and sisters in this world who are listening us, I can ask them to, to go to www.polepolefoundation.org or to WhatsApp, Instagram, and on. 
Perfect. Well, I hope some of our listeners will go and see the work that the Poli Poli Foundation has been doing because it really is impressive and inspiring. Um, and I feel really lucky to get to speak to you about it. I want to ask you one final question that I ask all of our guests just to end us out on a positive note. Um, I want to ask you why you personally believe we should keep fighting to protect biodiversity and prevent climate change and really what gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, <laughs> you can guess what I can reply. First of all, I said, me personally as John Kaikoua, I was born <laughs> around the gorillas. I live with the gorillas. I can't live without gorillas. My children, my daughters and my sons, my surroundings, my neighborhood, we all live on gorillas. Gorillas, where do they live? They live in a nature. Where is the nature? The nature is a planet. Rich, poor, master, slave, everybody depend on the planet. It's time for us to do, everyone to act from where he is, to do something to save the planet. Our mother, the, our common mother, it doesn't rely on the color of skin, on a length, or being shortened, or no, 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 no. You are a human, you are a species, you live on planet mother. So I did my, what I could, with limited, with, I, with limited funds, no funds at all, but I provide energy. Everyone can do it. Like you, Sophia, you can do also. Time for you to act. And to the young who are following us, presidents, kings, slaves, so we can all go to save our planet. And I'm always optimistic that if people can be acting like Pole Pole Foundation, I know there are many, of course, but uh, if we can keep acting all together in one hand, I'm sure that together we shall, we can, together we can, and we shall do more to save our planet before it's late. Those are beautiful and eloquent words for us to end on. I think you've inspired everybody to look around themselves and see what we can protect in our own local communities or where we can support people like you who have done that and looked around them and said, you know, what can I give back to this place? So thank you so much for your time. I know you're incredibly busy right now. You've been working all day on these projects and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Um, this has been very eye-opening and inspiring and it's it's wonderful to meet you. Thank you very much, Sophia. Let's keep in touch for more coming. Thank you for tuning in to Opwall's Field Notes. We hope you are inspired to support your own community after hearing John's story of creating innovative agricultural programs that combat hunger and protect the biodiversity of Cahuzzi Biega National Park in the DRC. Please do be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on new episodes about conservation and biodiversity hotspots around the world coming soon on Upwell's Field Notes.